to take your children back there now. For those of you whose children are staying in the service with us, they are uh, most welcome. We love having uh, children in the service with us, learning the rhythms of worship alongside of us. And, uh, and so if you are a guest with us this morning, my name's Joey, and I'm the pastor here. And, um, and just as Josh said, you, uh, we're happy that you are here. And, uh, and if you have any questions about just to learn more information about Deer Park, who we are, what we believe, um, please fill that Connect card out in the pew in front of you. You can drop it in that designated drop box as you walk out. We have, before uh, our sermon each Lord's Day, we've been working through our Confession of Faith, which is the London Confession of Faith, 1689 London Confession of Faith. And we started last week, Chapter 7, um, which the theme of Chapter 7 is God's covenant with man. And we are looking this morning at Paragraph 2, which um, introduces us, if you will, um, to the covenant of grace, which is what ties the Old and New Testaments together. And it says this in paragraph 2, Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so that is paragraph 2 of chapter 7 of our confession. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we are looking again this morning at chapter 4. Uh, the first 20 verses there, we again, we started looking at this particular parable, a parable commonly known as the parable of the soils. We started looking at this last week, and, uh, and we, I, one of the things I wanted to do, because it is evident in the text itself, is um, for us to really get our bearings as it relates to the purpose of the parables. And so if you missed last week, I would certainly encourage you to go back and listen, um, but... Uh, that is going to help us as we read and study and, Lord willing, are encouraged and changed by the Word of God as it relates to the parables of Jesus going forward. But we saw last week from Mark 4 that the purpose of the parables of Jesus, that, that they were twofold, okay? The purpose, number one, was that they revealed the mystery of God demonstrating to God's people God's grace. Okay, so they revealed the mystery of God, demonstrating to God's people God's grace. The second purpose uh, of the parables is that they conceal the mystery of God, demonstrating as well God's judgment. And we were reminded last week that, that in order to discern the uh, spiritual intent of the scriptures, in order to discern uh, God's intent in the scriptures that we have to come to the word of God with eyes of faith. Right? If I were to just give you a passage of scripture really that summarized this, it would be for us uh, the, the words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which says this, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? The, the, 
the natural man right there in the words of the Apostle Paul means it's our position, our position apart from the the intervening work of the Holy Spirit of God. We, we can't discern God's Word apart, spiritually speaking, apart from the Holy Spirit, which testifies to us about Jesus Christ. In order to spiritually profit from the Word of God, we need the Lord to give us these eyes of faith. So this morning, we, we come back to this parable right, with this renewed sense of, we should come back to this parable with this renewed sense of just being utterly depended upon the Holy Spirit of God. And, and the goal is to see the, the different way man receives the Word of God. In other words, we're looking at this morning the various conditions, if you will, of a man's heart that's receiving the Word of God, a woman's heart that's receiving the Word of God. And as we work through these various conditions, I just want to acknowledge that in the room this morning, more than likely, every one of these hearts is represented, okay? And so I told you last week that the parable of the soils could be renamed a look or an examination at the human heart, and that's what we're going to see this morning. And so let me read this parable again, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will work through it again. This is John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says this, And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Again, first type of soil. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. It's the second type. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop, third type. But other seed fell on the good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred, which is the fourth type. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him, about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that, and he quotes Isaiah here, seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness, and they have root, no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, 
and some a hundred. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again just for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who lives in your people, God, who helps us, God, to see your divine intent. So we ask that you would, as a result of having spent time in your word this morning, exalt Christ to us more clearly. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our focus this morning is, is going to be on Jesus' interpretation of the parable. And so if you have your Bibles, I would just encourage you to just keep your Bible open, particularly to verses 13 to 20 as we work through this scripture. Now, remember that Jesus is giving this parable to who uh, John Mark calls the multitude. And this multitude is as diverse as the parable itself. In other words, all, all these different types of soils or these, as we'll see, various conditions of the heart, they would have been represented in this multitude. And, and, and that's how I've organized the sermon this morning. And, and I think that it's, it's an appropriate way for us to look at this passage because all, although all of us gather here this morning, we're, maybe we're not as large as this multitude was when this parable was given, but I promise that we're just as diverse as this multitude, that more than likely all these various conditions of the heart are represented here this morning. Now, I've named each of these hearts to kind of help us as we go along, and perhaps you're going to look at the text this morning and think that I could have come up with better names, but uh, my goal was to try to capture each condition as I see it present this morning. And so if you're taking notes and can shorthand this, the, the first type of heart that we see illustrated to us in this parable is the impenetrable heart, right? the impenetrable heart. Right? We see that in verse 15, or rather we see the interpretation that Christ gives us in verse 15, right? These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately, is what the text says, right? So notice how quickly Satan comes in to take what's sown. It says he takes away the word that was, was put in their hearts. The, the Puritan and, and commentator Matthew Henry, he says of this condition, quote, the devil is very busy about careless hearers as the fowls of the air go about the seed that lies above the ground. Many continue in a barren false profession and go down to hell. This, this is truly a, a, the impenetrable heart is a heart of stone. Right? It, it's a heart that, that hears the word of God, but it doesn't consider the word of God. Right? Not, not really consider. Right? There, there, there may be an interest as it relates to hearing God's word, perhaps as a an intellectual activity or as an academic pursuit or as it being accepted as a societal function. But, but there's no, for the impenetrable heart, there's no internalizing God's Word. There's no feasting on God's Word. There's no taking it 
in and digesting it so that you might be changed by the gospel of God. And if not for the grace of God, we should note this would be every single one of us. Right? This would be all of us. Right? None of us, apart from the intervening work of the Spirit of God, is a seeker. Not really. Right? The Apostle Paul, quoting the psalmist in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, says, There is none who understands. There is none who, what? Seeks. After who? After God. This is all of our condition, apart from God intervening in our lives. So we, we don't want to look at the impenetrable heart with pride as Christians. But we should look at it when we gaze upon maybe the person that we suspect has this impenetrable heart. We should gaze upon it with holy sorrow. With holy sorrow and, and we should approach it or approach the one who has this heart posture as an intercessor. give an example just from history as it relates to the impenetrable heart. Think of Benjamin Franklin, maybe one of our founding fathers and his fascination with the preaching ministry of the, the revivalist George Whitfield in the early to, to mid-1700s. Right? Whitfield was this major just theological voice or evangelist during the First Great Awakening alongside of Jonathan Edwards. And I'm not sure how many of you know about Franklin's perspective or his relationship with George Whitfield, but Franklin, in his autobiography, he records George Whitfield, he records an appreciation for the oratory skills of Whitfield. He even likes the persuasiveness that Whitfield had over society, over those that would come and listen to him preach, which it's been documented that upwards of 30,000 people would come to hear George Whitfield preach. But Franklin, he writes this in his autobiography. He says, It was wonderful to see the changes made in the behavior of our inhabitants from being faultless or indifferent about religion. It seemed as if the world were growing religious. Franklin, who was a rationalistic theist, for him, good morals, they were his chief goal, or what he believed was the chief goal of, of religion. And he noticed an improvement in the morality of people who were affected by the preaching ministry of George Whitfield. Right? And, and perhaps that may be where some of you are here this morning, right? You, you might, like Ben Franklin, think that this talk of Christ resurrecting from the dead is perhaps silly. Right? But you desire the morality commended in Scripture. You desire what you see it produce in society. Right? Franklin, he appreciated the morality that one could get from the Bible. And from his perspective, Whitfield's preaching promoted Morality, Yet at the same time, Franklin rejected it, and he thought it crazy, this, this notion that Jesus is God incarnate, or that he was born of the Virgin Mary, and that he bodily resurrected from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. Franklin rejected what would be considered the supernatural in Scripture or the miracles in Scripture, much like 
Thomas Jefferson who cut out the things that he, from a rational standpoint, couldn't get behind, right? Rationalistic theist is what they were. But I bring this up because this is a case study in the impenetrable heart, right? Franklin isn't overtly hostile, and he even enjoyed listening to the preaching of Whitfield, and he enjoyed the culture that Whitfield's preaching perhaps produced, but he rejected the core of Christianity. He rejected the core of Christianity, which is to reject the gospel of God. Right? He rejected the gospel of God. He heard the word. He even appreciated the word. And again, appreciated what the, what the word produced. But Satan came and immediately took it away from his heart. Right? And Franklin's story isn't it's not unique. And how sad it is, right, that, that men and women would hear the word of God, right, would, would hear the, the gospel of God and greet it with cold indifference or with just a sterile intellectual curiosity, right, or would welcome Christianity for what it produces while rejecting its Lord and God, the person behind the change. It's been said by one preacher that everybody wants to go to heaven, right? If I did a survey in here and I asked you, hey, those of you who want to go to heaven, raise your hand. We'd all raise our hand. Those of you who want to go to hell, raise your hand. Nobody's raising their hand, right? Everybody wants to go to heaven, like this one preacher says. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. Right? We, we want the benefits and we want perhaps what all this produces without wanting God himself. And God is what makes heaven heaven. Right? There is no heaven without God. There is no heaven without the Father, Son, and Spirit. So for the impenetrable heart this morning, our prayer for one who may exhibit this in their life should be shaped perhaps by the words of Ezekiel under the inspiration of God, chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, where the Lord says this through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments do them. Right? A new heart is what's needed. A soft heart is what's needed. One that desires the God of the gospel. Not just what God produces, but who God is. And he really does turn stony hearts into hearts of flesh, right? And what's one of our evidences that this is the case? It's us. It's you and me. Right, even our individual testimonies, knowing who we were and who we are by the grace of God now. So that's the first heart we see in this parable. The second one we see is the superficial heart. Superficial heart. See this in verses 16 and 17. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. So the first heart, right, the impenetrable heart, immediately the word of God is taken from them. 
Now, this one, it's they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake, immediately they stumble. And that word immediately is qualified in our text by the phrase, they have no root. Right? So immediately here, it means thoughtlessly received. Right? Thoughtlessly received or received without consideration. Now, that phrase received with gladness or received it with gladness in our passage, that's an interesting phrase as well. It reminds me of of Herod, who John Mark says in in chapter 6, right? We'll look at this when we get to chapter 6, but chapter 6, verse 20 says this, Herod feared John, right? Speaking of John the Baptist, knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him. And when he heard him, when he heard John the Baptist preach, he did many things and heard him gladly. Herod heard John the Baptist, his preaching ministry, gladly. And Herod, if you know anything about him, right? John the Baptist was confronting Herod for taking his brother's wife, right? He was in an unlawful relationship that John the Baptist confronted. But here in Mark 6.20, we read, Herod heard John gladly. Heard him gladly. But he wasn't moved to repentance. He wasn't moved to repentance. The text says that he knew John the Baptist to be a just man. He knew John the Baptist to be a holy man, and he heard John's message gladly, but the word of God was met with an an unwillingness to to change. Again, the words of Ezekiel, if we were to go back there, describe the state of a soul like Herod, or the state of a heart like Herod, right? The Lord, through the prophet Ezekiel, says, So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they don't do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Following Jesus is a disowning of yourself. It's a disowning of yourself. Jesus says following him is to deny yourself and to take up your what? Your cross, Matthew 16, 24. Your instrument of death, a death of self is the gaining of Christ, right? A a death to self is the gaining of Christ. Herod was unwilling. He was unwilling, right? If you're familiar with John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character early on in the story named Pliable, which is a, a bit on the nose, right? And he initially tried to persuade Christian not to embark on his journey toward the celestial city, right? Toward, toward heaven, away from the city of destruction, which is our place of residence apart from God intervening in our lives. But when Christian begins to speak to Pliable about how glorious the celestial city is, Pliable, he joins Christian without any thought or consideration of what, that, of, of, of what the journey of self-denial looked like, right? He He's pliable, right? He's pliable. But not too far in the journey, Christian and pliable fall into what Bunyan calls the slow of despon, right? Which is this, this, uh, this place of despondency, if you will. And it's, it's this, in the story, this muddy bog of sorts that represents guilt and it represents fear that comes through the conviction of sin, 
And Pliable there, he realizes that the path to the celestial city is a costly one, right? It's a, it's a path of repentance. It's a path of difficulty. And immediately, Pliable does what Pliable does, right? He turns back, he abandons the journey, and he goes for the comfortable life in the city of destruction. And one quote out of Bunyan's book is insightful. Bunyan says this, Alas, poor Pliable is the celestial glory of so little value to him that he considers it unworthy of his hazarding a few difficulties to obtain it. So the superficial heart, it's one that may confess Christ. Perhaps confess Christ gladly, but it's a heart that's far from Christ. It's a heart that's far from Christ. So if you know, we're seeking to evaluate ourselves by the Spirit through the Word of God this morning. We need to ask ourselves questions like, are we sitting here this morning happy to hear God's Word, yet unmotivated by the Word of God to repent of our particular sins, to disavow, disown ourselves, and rest in Christ alone? Will tribulations and persecutions that, by the way, will come for you, it will come for you. Will it make you abandon the faith that you profess? Are you motivated by God's grace to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Or do you in your life demonstrate what the Apostle Paul calls a worldly sorrow, even for sin that leads not to life, but leads to death, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, right? A worldly sorrow that can perhaps be characterized by sadness and, and tears at bad things in your life, but makes, makes no steps, no productive steps toward walking in the light. In other words, is your faith, is it a superficial faith? Do you have a superficial faith? The third heart that we see here is the idolatrous heart the idolatrous heart. We see that verses 18 and 19. Right? These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So we have these thorns in life. right? These thorns that threatened to choke out the word of the Lord. And these thorns, according to verses 18 and, and 19 here, are cares, right? meaning worries and anxieties of this world. Right? Are, are you constantly worried? Are you constantly anxious? Right? Does your mind and your heart stay fixated on fears and a series of just what ifs, what ifs? What ifs? As if there's no God who's in control. And you hear well in these verses the danger of having an idolatrous heart in which your worries are bigger than your God. You see here as well the deceitfulness of riches, right? We see warnings in Scripture regarding not money in and of itself, but what? The love. Right of money, First Timothy chapter six, verses nine to ten, and verse seventeen. But finding security in your stuff right? instead of in Christ 
is a real danger there. And we see also the word desires in the passage, right? Which that word actually means that's being used there, violent desires. Violent desires. Lusts. You have violent desires or lusts for other things. This may be forbidden sexual desires. We could fill this in with the lust of power, or the lust in pursuit of privilege, or coveting what others have. Right? It, it could be a violent desire of even something good, right? something that, that it's good to want in your life. But instead of you holding it open-handed before the Lord and, and asking the Lord for whatever it is, this good thing, and saying, Thy will be done, you offer this thing to the Lord and you say, My will be done. Right? And you begin to hold it close-fisted and it becomes this all-encompassing idol in your life. And you begin to talk about this want in terms of needs. I must have this or I won't be happy I won't be at peace. When you begin to speak of things like that in terms of need, that's a good indicator that there's an idol in your heart, that you're worshiping something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do these things do? When they're controlling our lives, what do they do? Our passage says this morning that they choke the Word of God out of our lives. Why? Why do they do that? Because there's no room in our hearts and minds for anything else. We've already packed it full of these various idols, right? We've filled it with obsessing over these other things. And the Word of God can't abide with that which is contrary to the Word of God, the thorns. We see in Scripture a cautionary tale in Paul's friend Demas. I know how familiar you are with him, and I've been trying to give you a few case studies along the way to examine these hearts a bit better for us. But our case study for this heart is Demas. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, Paul says this to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Right? Demas was a companion to the apostle Paul who ministered alongside of Paul. He was discipled by Paul. He was somebody that Paul mentioned favorably, both in Colossians and Philemon, which for those of you who are unfamiliar with that book, you call it Philemon, right? But here we see that Demas, this, this, this close companion of the apostle Paul, he abandoned the faith. And Paul says that he abandoned the faith because, quote, he loved this present world. He loved this present world. All right, friend, you may, you may call yourself a Christian, but is your love for this present world, is it strong? Is it strong? If you examined your days and you recorded the meditations of your heart, what would they be? What would they be? Love of this present world will choke out the word of God. It did for Demas, a close companion of the Apostle Paul, and you won't be any different. Quote, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The final heart we see in the parable this morning is the humble heart. The humble heart. Verse 20. 
But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. Right? Luke records it this way in his gospel. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Right? This is the heart of a converted man or woman of God. There are, in this parable, three ways the Word of God is ultimately rejected. And we now have those three ways contrasted with three varying degrees at which it bears fruit in a daughter or son of God. And it's marked by the words 30-fold, 60, and 100. Now, the very same language used in the parable itself, Jesus uses in the interpretation of the parable, and there are two note things that, that that are noteworthy that we need to see here, as the humble heart is contrasted with those hearts that ultimately reject the triune God. And the first is this: it's no coincidence that Jesus, who's the final word of God, right? John chapter one, Hebrews chapter one. But it's no coincidence that Jesus, who's the final word of God, speaks of the humble heart being a uh, reception, a welcoming of the word. So to welcome the word of God truly, to welcome the word of God, to receive the word of God is to receive Christ himself because Christ is the word incarnate and the scriptures testify about Christ. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Right? Abiding in Christ, which means to stay with Christ, to remain with Christ, to live with Christ, to dwell with Christ, to lodge with Christ, to sojourn with Christ, to rest in Christ, to be in a state that begins and continues with Christ. Abiding in Christ like a branch, us, being connected forever to this vine, Christ, and in turn it produces good fruit. Right? It's an everlasting union that's founded upon the grace in God, a grace of God in which we're utterly dependent upon Christ. Right? In Him, in Christ, we live, we move, we have our being. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. And in turn, we bear fruit. Right? We bear this good fruit because God promises that those who belong to Christ will bear this fruit. And this fruit, right, if we gave it another classification, we would call it good works or perhaps even better spirit-wrought works, we could call it. They don't contribute, these works, they don't contribute any way, in any way to our salvation, right? They don't improve our right standing before God. They don't make God's love for us any stronger they are in our lives just further evidences of God's grace. Further evidences of God's grace so that we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. The humble heart abides in Christ and the fruits we bear 
again, are further evidences of just how far we've sunk into his glorious grace. That's the first thing that we need to see. The second thing for us to see is the varying stages of spiritual maturity marked by the words 30-fold, 60, and 100. In other words, I don't think giftings is the, the only thing that we have in view here in this passage. And I think that our noticing this, it can keep us from despair in the progress or our perceived lack of progress that we're making in the Christian life. Right? All of us that are in Christ are at various stages in our maturity, right? our, our spiritual progress, or to use the biblical word sanctification. In spiritual maturity, it doesn't correspond to your age necessarily. It also doesn't just passively happen. Right? It's cultivated in cooperation with the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. And, and I want to highlight and just press upon us just a couple of things as it relates to this, and, and then I'll close this in prayer. First, if you're truly in Christ, and, and perhaps this is, you, you're at a place where you're frustrated with your progress, but if you're in Christ, let the varying degrees of 30-fold 60 and 100. Let it encourage you this morning. Let it encourage you this morning. Don't use the words as an excuse to be spiritually lazy. That's not what the Lord intends in this passage. But see these varying degrees as evidence that God's people are going to bear varying degrees of fruit in life. Right? Christians always have this desire, and this is a good desire, but Christians always have this desire to want to be further down the road. And perhaps you've done things along the way to stunt your growth. But if you zoom out, Christian, and you examine the trajectory of your life, you'll find that you're able to thank God for the changes that He's made in you. Even the seemingly insignificant changes. Even if 30-fold describes you more than 100-fold, we're, we're all at different stages along the way. None of us have arrived, right? And if we begin to think that way, perhaps we're not the humble heart that we think we are, right? But we're pilgrims in a lifelong journey of, of growing in Christ by abiding in Christ. So that's the first thing. Be encouraged, Christian. Secondly, be patient with other people's spiritual progress or lack thereof from your perspective. Right? There's no room for pride in bearing fruit. Right? You, you can't manufacture true spiritual growth in the life of another person as if it's some 12-step program. Right? You, you can't shape and fashion the heart of another image bearer. But as you point others to Jesus by pointing them to his word, and as you faithfully pray for those in your life, you'll find yourself increasingly being able to praise God even for the small steps of maturity that you see. So be patient with people, not judgmental about their pace. We're all at different stages in the walk, and fruit and progress is measured according to God's standard, not according to to our own impatient standard. So this morning, just in conclusion, how, how would we, you know, if we bottom line this morning, taking into consideration all of the various 
heart postures represented by this parable, what would a conclusion on a parable such as this be? The conclusion is this. Right? Humble yourself and ask for the Spirit's help in evaluating your own heart and come to Christ anew this morning in repentance and faith. Come to Christ anew this morning in gratitude. Come to Christ anew this morning as your Savior and as your God. Will we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for allowing us to just spend a couple of weeks in this parable. And Lord, I pray for those that are represented here, God. I pray for the impenetrable heart, God. I pray that by your Spirit, that your Word would penetrate the heart, God, and re regenerate their heart. God, calls them to come to saving faith, God. I pray for the superficial heart, Lord that they may joyfully take up their cross and follow you, Lord. God, seeing that we can count all things as, as rubbish for the sake of knowing you. I pray, God, for the idolatrous heart, God, one that's plagued by various fears and lusts and concerns, God. I ask that you would grant them repentance, steady heart and mind fixed, Jesus, who's our perfect peace. And Lord, we confess those who exhibit a humble heart, that it's not because any of us are humble in and of ourselves, God, but it's because you've humbled us. You have humbled us. And you've made us right through your suffering servant, Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death, cross gloriously and bodily resurrected God for our justification that he sits at your right hand God praying for us praying us home and God forever we enjoy union with him we thank you God we give you all praise and all glory in Jesus name